Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Julian Zelizer on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Arsenal of Democracy, The Politics of National Security from World War II to the War on Terrorism. We'll also be talking to Julian about his activity as a public intellectual. This is the third, I believe, in a series of podcasts that we're doing in conjunction with the National History Center, and they suggested that we talk to Julian specifically about both this book and his work as a public intellectual. Uh, The National History Center is devoted to helping historians have their voices heard in public, and Julian certainly has a voice, and he will tell us a little bit about how he expresses it and gets people to listen. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Julian. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Doing pretty well. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Are you in a you're in Princeton, New Jersey? Is that correct? Yes, I'm in my office at Dickinson Hall. I'm Dickinson Hall. Hall. You know, I spent some I spent some time at Princeton University actually. Uh, not not that that many years ago. Um, but I remember it's a very quiet place and good to study. That's, that, yeah. was, that was my recollection of it. Quiet and good to study. <laughs> I should tell our listeners that we have Julian Zelzer on the show today, and we will be talking about two things. Um, one, we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Arsenal of Democracy, The Politics of National Security from World War II to the War on Terrorism. And I can tell you, I found this book incredibly eye-opening, almost on every page. You know, it's one of these books where you think you understand why X happened, but there's always a really long and complicated backstory full of contingency. And Julian does a terrific job of ferreting out all of those complexities. I I don't think I'll ever read the New York Times the same way again because they inevitably get it wrong. You'll pardon me for saying. And Julian gets it right on every page. So I I really encourage you to read the book. And the other thing we're going to be talking about is Julian's activities as a public intellectual. One of the purposes of this show uh, is to help people understand uh, what historians do. And part of what historians do is attempt to not only inform the public at large, but also to uh, shape or inform policy decisions. And Julian is uh, one of the premier, I guess I would call them historian, public intellectuals in the United States. And uh, he knows the ropes. He knows how this game is played. And I don't mean game in a trivial sense. And so we'll be talking to him about his various activities, talking to members of Congress and the press and writing op-eds and these kinds of things. And we'll ask him about the way in which historical thinking and research can inform the policy debates. But before we get to that, Julian, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. I, I was in, I'm was i from New Jersey. I grew up in Metuchen, New Jersey, and I went to Brandeis University as an undergraduate. Uh, that's where I became interested in political history I worked with uh, Professor Ben Klopenberg, uh, who studies the, policy, the history of political ideas, uh, and I did a junior project with him funded by the Ford Foundation on the history of liberalism in Massachusetts, uh, which turned into my senior thesis. And that's when I really became quite interested in pursuing this profession. Um, I then went to Johns Hopkins University, where I worked with Lou Galambos, my advisor, uh, who focuses on 20th century institutions. And I wrote my dissertation on Wilbur Mills, who was the chairman of the House. Wilbur Mills, yeah. Yes. That's not Uh, a name I've heard in a while. Incredibly powerful uh, politician who went down in one of the big scandals in American politics. Um, And that turned into my first book. Uh, And I really wanted to kind of get into the heart of Washington. Uh, And he was a perfect figure uh, to try to understand how the institutions work. And and more importantly, I was really interested in Congress and, and what role Congress played in shaping legislation. Uh, and my first job was at uh, SUNY Albany, 
uh, where I was in the history department and uh, the public policy school, and I spent several years there. Uh, worked, finished the Mills book, wrote a bunch of articles, and started a second book on congressional reform in the 1970s, how uh, younger liberals tried to fix the institution, uh, ranging from filibuster reform to opening up uh, committee hearings to the public, uh, and what happened uh, to the reforms. And, and it's a story in part on how conservatives took advantage of many of the reforms that liberals had put into place mm -hmm. uh, during the 1980s and 90s. I then moved to Boston University, uh, where I was in the history department, uh, and I worked closely with Bruce Shulman to develop a bunch of programs mm -hmm. on political history. Uh, and most recently, I came here to Princeton, where I finished this book, Arsenal of Democracy. And I've, I've really been interested, I mean, the, the specifics of Congress, America since World War II, but more broadly, I've been really uh, engaged and uh, have attempted to revitalize the field of American political history, which for many decades had, had been a bit uh, more abundant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that, that, that is absolutely true, what you say about that. It's a little bit, I do some military history, and I think that the same is true of military history, although I think that it's coming back in some way. Why don't you tell us how you, um, by the way, I wanted to say that Metuchen, New Jersey, I know Metuchen, New Jersey a little bit because I had a girlfriend in college from there. That's oh, okay. Yes, that's what I'm saying. It's right down the road from Princeton, isn't it? Yeah, it's about a half hour. Yeah, right. It's on the train there. The, um, so, Martha, if you're listening, let's mention you. The, um, the, the, why don't you tell us how you came to write this particular book, Arsenal of Democracy? This started really, I was finishing this book on congressional reform right around 9-11. And, and uh, like all Americans who lived through 9-11, it was you know, a highly traumatic event. And um, it, it got me thinking about uh, national security, but, but the continued partisanship uh, that followed about two days of politicians saying everyone would be united, uh, and, and that broke down very quickly. Uh, I just started watching the news on, on kind of how the, the politics is playing out uh, in the response to this issue. And, and that got me interested uh, to look back at, at how the nation and how the political leaders are handling other national security crises. Uh, and, and first, the book was going to be about America since Vietnam and kind of how Vietnam had impacted, uh, you know, the politics of national security. But as always uh, with historians, I moved back in time uh, and, and really ended up starting the heart of the book in World War II and the early Cold War with the creation of a national security state. And, and you know, there is this kind of conventional argument that politics stops at the water's mm -hmm. edge. And I, I think many people know that's not true, uh, and, and, and they have a sense uh, that's just the same. Uh, but what's remarkable is we don't really have histories of that, mm -hmm. um, of, of how it's played out in the political world and how the parties have struggled on this issue and some of the political pressures policymakers face when dealing with everything, uh, including moments I have in the book like the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, that we forget about the politics. And I really wanted to write a kind of big narrative uh, synthesis of, mm -hmm. of how this issue has, has played out. Um, and that was really the origins of the book. And then it was, you know, it's, it's one of those topics where, where since not a lot has been written on it, uh, you know, you as the historian just find a surprise in, in every archive. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of very engaging topic to write about that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right about our inability to almost see past this cliche, uh, politics stops at the water's edge. I know that in some research that I, I was doing recently on World War One and World War Two and America's entry into both of those wars, there was pretty serious debate about whether we should enter First World War One, obviously, and then even World War Two. This is a war that we think of as the good war, and of course we were going to get into it, and of course we were going to fight the Nazis. They were evil incarnate. But in fact, when you go and look at the documents, I didn't look at a lot of them, but there were a lot of people who were playing politics with that issue. Uh, and again, I don't mean playing in the trivial sense that uh, you know, these things aren't as clear cut. And this is even more shocking to me because we know that uh, recently in the decision to go to war in the second Gulf War, that there was a lot of debate about it. I mean, our own recent experience tells us this. Yeah, I think, I mean, my sense is there's kind of three reasons about why you didn't have a book like this. Um, you know, one is it, it is, it's a myth uh, and it's a cliche, but it, it is one to some degree we want to be true. 
uh, I don't think people look favorably at how political national security yeah. is in recent years. So you, you kind of hope that you know moment when Arthur Vandenberg and Harry Truman were able to work together for a year uh, represented you know <laughs> what we could do. And so I think that's part of it. Uh, there's a kind of historiographical issue, diplomatic history. Kind of, uh, it, it became isolated like political history did after the 1960s and the social and cultural history revolution. And, and the thing was, diplomatic and political history remained separate. Uh, diplomatic history turned much more toward the study of State Department officials, mm-hmm. of international negotiations, and they didn't look at the kind of sources which would bring it back to the politics of the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, political history didn't really deal with national security foreign policy. They yeah. were, uh, as they rebuilt the field, they were really focused on, including myself, on domestic issues, social security, welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these two fields uh, have remained far apart. And the third is, you know, it's, it's required, a lot of the archives used usually to study issues of war and peace are, again, you know, State Department documents mm-hmm. or advisors to the president who focus exclusively on policymakers. And, and what you have to look at is everything from, from the newspapers of the period uh, to oral histories of the period um, to, you know, the political operatives and what they were saying to really get a flavor of this other, to congressional hearings, uh, this other side of, of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that when I was in, um, actually, this takes me back to my time, in Princeton, I was at the Institute for Advanced Study, and Jack Matlock was there, who was the last American ambassador to the Soviet Union when there was a Soviet Union, and I used to eat lunch with him occasionally. And uh, It was very eye-opening um, when he was discussing exactly what they were doing, because he always put everything in a political context. I mean, he said something that I've never forgotten, and actually I repeat quite a bit, and that is that you can't ask a politician to do something he can't do. <laughs> if you see right. what I mean. And that, you know, right. I never really realized that before, but you're right, you can't. <laughs> and especially in the American context, you can't ask a politician to do what he can't do. So, uh, right. yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I learned that from Matlock, who was a, you know, sort of both a consummate diplomat and politician. And actually, I should say George Kennan was right down the hall from us at yeah. the Institute. So he was very old at that point. But nonetheless, I had yeah. met him earlier in my life and also a consummate politician, public intellectual and um, diplomat. So one of the things I was very interested uh, about in your book was this notion of a national security state. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, uh, America, you know, one one of the other myths is that America wasn't really involved in international affairs and war before the 1930s. And, and in fact, uh, you know, there's great historians such as George Herring who have now demolished that myth that we were isolationists uh, until World War One and World War Two, and they've shown all sorts of wars and military operations uh, we were involved with from the founding of the country uh, through the current period. Uh, that The thing is, we didn't have a, a permanent national security apparatus the way we have since the Cold War, meaning institutions like the CIA and the National Security Council, a really robust and uh, sizable Navy, Army, uh, and Air Force. We didn't have a permanent draft. Uh, it was fought until the 1930s and 40s on a much more ad hoc basis. We went to war, we engaged in a military operation, and we took things apart. We didn't spend very much relative to other countries on on these kind of operations. And all that changed. Uh, uh, it starts, I think, I mean, World War One begins it, but a lot of the, the state is, after, is dismantled after that war. But with World War II and the Cold War, we take a series of steps and put institutions into place uh, that are not retrenched, and they will remain part of our political system uh, until until today. Um, and again, uh, you know, the CIA is just is kind of a great model, uh, and 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 all kinds of policies and ideas and commitments that that were meshed into the fabric of our democracy. Mm-hmm. No, I tell you, raise the. I mean, the, the questions that then raised, uh, you know, after you have this Cold War national security state put into place, I, I talk in the book that there is always this tension between the arsenal and, and democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for, demo- for, for our democracy, the question was, would these institutions, uh, what have been called sometimes the military-industrial complex, would they take on a life of their own? Uh, would, uh, would policymakers be able to make decisions outside of the political process and take us to war when they wanted and 
and engage us in certain areas when they wanted. And, and for policymakers, the challenge was how do you formulate policy when, as you said, politicians are thinking about elections all the yeah, time. Right. Uh, and, and that's very much on their mind. And so this created tensions that I think have played out in the last six decades and have been at the heart of our political debate. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mention the growth of the national security bureaucracy. I tell my students when they come to my office and ask me about careers, I, I tell them to get in on the ground floor of the Department of Homeland Security because I don't think it's going to do anything but grow. That's, that would be my impression. Um, there, there was a time, though, of course, when we didn't have any of these things. And I, I, I do wonder if there's not a certain slippery slope here that um, we started off in a direction, and you don't need to be a Republican uh, or a kind of uh, small status, so to say, to, to see this, that um, – you know, to me, as someone who's a European historian, when the Department of Homeland Security was created, I, I, I really thought it was jaw-dropping because, you know, uh, it really brings to mind continental European analogs. You know, the, uh, <laughs> in the German contest, the Zickerheitsdienst, which, you know, is the, you know, the, it's, it's basically the Gestapo. Um, the, the, um, yeah, so I, I do wonder uh, what you might say about how, how we got from the point where we basically didn't have a standing army to the point where we could have a Department of Homeland Security? Well, part of it was just the impact of crisis. So, you know, one of the, the first big changes is the implementation of a permanent draft. Uh, and, and we do that during World War II uh, in 1940, right before the end mm -hmm. of the war. Uh, until that time, imp creating a draft in this country was as volatile as, in some ways, you know, Homeland Security programs have been. Many mm -hmm. uh, conservatives said this was a bad idea. You have a standing army here. Uh, many liberals felt the same way, that they argued that the government would have the power to coerce people uh, into going to war. Uh, unions, for example, in the 40s were very nervous that uh, they'd be drafted if they caused problems. They'd just start drafting workers to end strikes. Mm -hmm. So it was a really controversial, but the crisis of World War II uh, really pushed FDR and, and Democrats and some Republicans to accept it. So part of the same thing happened with the Cold War, and I'd argue the same thing happened after 9-11. A part of it is that kind of the opposition in general did fade. Um, I mean, it was very strong still in the 40s, the, the fears and anxieties about a national security state. There were Republicans like Robert Taft of Ohio who, who were leaders in the party. They weren't marginal figures were really opposed to a lot of this, uh, and they're kind of consistent in their opposition to big government, uh, whether you're dealing with war or whether you're dealing uh, with, uh, you know, welfare. Uh, but they also uh, become less important in the party during the 50s and 60s. Uh, they were replaced by people like William Buckley, who argued that on national security, uh, conservatives had to basically accept uh, a large national security state. It was distasteful. It was not good. But that's one area where government was necessary. And it's been really an important part of conservatism, uh, the, the national security aspect, not just the small government aspect. Uh, and then you know, liberalism in the 1940s and 50s embraced the idea that uh, also a national security state was essential. FDR, Truman, most of the congressional Democrats uh, didn't have much uh, in terms of negative things to say about what was going on. So you do have something of a consensus uh, broadly over creating this state. And once you have a big institution, they're hard to dismantle. Uh, you're right, and uh, we're seeing that today. It's, uh, Presidents can rarely remake the, the landscape that they inherit. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's very interesting. So, if World War II is the moment at which Americans and American politicians decided that we were going to embrace foreign entanglements, let's put it that way, one of the things that was very interesting to me in your book, and you talk a lot about, is the way in which, and this may be a mischaracterization, I may be reading something into what you've said, so I want you to um, carefully listen and, and, uh, and respond. It seems to me that both the Republicans and the Democrats after Truman um, were involved in kind of an, a <laughs> the, the metaphor of an arms race comes to mind. That is, each was trying to demonstrate that the other was m more hawkish. And in that sense, they pushed everyone to the, and I want to say right, but I want to, I guess they pushed everyone to the side which said we needed a large security apparatus. I mean, one of the things I think people don't realize, and again, it's pretty clear in the documents, is that both Richard Nixon and JFK were very strong um, anti-communist candidates. 
uh, that it doesn't break in the same way uh, as it does today. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the late 40s and 50s for me were some of the most interesting times uh, to write about. Uh, part of what happens is obviously Democrats come out of World War II strong politically on the issue of national security. Uh, you know, FDR had led the nation to uh, a kind of clear victory, uh, decisive victory. Uh, but in the late 40s, some of the politics changes. Uh, many Republicans are looking for ways uh, to criticize uh, the Democrats to regain what's now called the national security advantage. And, and two major events include the fall of China to communism in 1949 and then the stalemate in Korea between 50 and 53. And Republicans use both of those as a way to criticize Democrats for a kind of being weak on defense, same charges you hear today, for not doing enough to fight against communism. In addition to not doing enough here in the States, they argued, to root out um, communist spies. Mm -hmm. And the 52 election, uh, where uh, Adlai Stevenson loses to Eisenhower, Republicans gain control of Congress, two of the big issues, uh, in addition to corruption, were anti-communism here at home in Korea. Mm -hmm. And for Democrats of that generation, people like Lyndon Johnson, I think that election scarred them, and those national security battles uh, really got into their psychology. They, they weren't going to let that happen again. Uh, and in the 50s, the Democrats were the hawks. I mean, one of the things that happens mm -hmm. in the mid-50s is Democrats in the Senate start to attack Dwight Eisenhower. And they say <laughs> that, that, yeah, that Dwight Eisenhower is so focused on balancing budgets and, uh, and, and trying to cut military spending, which he was, uh, and that he was endangering the country and that we weren't spending enough on missiles and other kinds of weapons systems. And this is a very kind of prevalent ar uh, argument in the 50s by people like Stuart Simonson, a Missouri Democrat, or John F. Kennedy, or Henry Scoop Jackson of Washington. Uh, and there's hearings, and they're, they're saying this in the media. Uh, and when Sputnik happens in 57, a story we all know, it wasn't just about a scientific race with the Soviet Union. Democrats, as soon as Sputnik happens, say, look, we were right. The, the Soviets are far ahead of us because this president is so concerned about cutting spending, uh, and we are in a dangerous position militarily. Uh, and so the missile gap debate, uh, which is what Kennedy uses against Nixon, uh, arguing Eisenhower had left the country with a gap in terms of missile production compared to the Soviets, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was how JFK positioned himself as a strong anti-communist, but equally important, it grew out of 1950s, democratic politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and it will be very important to Johnson as he accelerates the war in Vietnam in a, a few years later, that same kind of mentality, not to get out-hawked by, by the Republicans. Out-hawked. That's exactly the phrase I was looking for. Um, you know, because it's sort of an analogy to um, something a friend of mine used to tell me teaches in the English department. He would say that during English department debates, people would out-left one another. <laughs> I don't know. And, and here these people are out-hawking one another. That's exactly the phrase I want. Um, I think the contemporary uh, Republican Party would do well to actually look back to the um, Eisenhower era and think about those Eisenhower Republicans. They're gone now, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the things I, I wanted to kind of challenge you to do, and I think it would be interesting for the listeners, is, I mean, the brunt of the argument of your book is that politics matters a lot. Um, that is, congressional politics and presidential politics, not only a kind of ideology and national interest in these sorts of things, uh, for uh, national security decisions – uh, for decisions about whether to go to war and so on and so forth. And I wanted to just uh, take you through a, a series of, of questions about why we went to war and see if you could give a sort of, I don't know if counterintuitive is the right word, but to give us the political context of the decision to take us to war. And we, we won't deal with World War One or World War Two, but let's start with Korea because you have some fascinating things about that. We tend to look back at Korea and we say we're going to fight international communism and everybody got on board. And then we uh, went to Korea and we saved the South Koreans. What actually happened? Well, uh, in that case, you have to start with the fall of China to communism, and, and, and that happens in 49, where the war with Korea starts in 1950. Uh, and, and the attacks that uh, emerge after uh, that, uh, the events in China, with Republicans really intensifying their attacks on the Truman administration, and at the same time, kind of allies of Senator Joe McCarthy intensifying their attacks that we're not doing enough to root out uh, communist spies in the State Department are very much on the minds of the Truman administration. 
Uh, Truman had tried to position himself as a strong anti-communist, uh, both with the Truman Doctrine, the National Security Act, and more. But he's on the defensive in 1950 uh, when, when the invasion in South Korea happens. Uh, Democrats are also very nervous about the 1950 midterm elections, not that they will lose control of Congress, but that the conservative coalition of Southern Democrats and Republicans are going to expand their numbers. Uh, so uh, the context in which Truman makes decision is one where Democrats are feeling immensely defensive uh, and nervous that if there is not a strong response uh, to, to the invasion, that he will open himself up to charges of, of kind of falling down on the job again, doing essentially what had happened uh, in, in his critics' mind uh, with, with China. And importantly, it's not the reason he makes the decision. And I don't want to mm -hmm. argue that politicians always go to work as a political decision, sure. but it is the context in which they have to make these decisions. And it is one of the pieces uh, that, that influences him. And Truman himself, there's evidence, was, was very cognizant of this as, as he was trying to decide what to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling, which doesn't really help on the radio, but that was, um, that was really quite brilliant. I think that, that was very eye-opening for me, that, that part of the book. Because uh, I really did think that, that at that point that, wa that politics did uh, stop at the water's edge. But as you make a point, yeah, I, 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 I must say, you know, after he goes in and then and then the midterm elections, you know, are basically gearing up as as the, the Korean War uh, starts. And uh, those midterm elections of 1950, I mean, just a, a close look at them should shatter the notion that. The early Cold War was some period where you know, Arthur Vandenberg and Harry Truman were the North. They are absolutely brutal. In a way, you know, they, they resemble the 2002 midterm elections, which were also very political. Republicans were aggressively attacking Democrats uh, and saying, you know, the reason Korea is, is not going well is because Truman has refused to invest in the army. It's because he's not using enough force in Korea. He won't, you know, bomb. Uh, and 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 that you know the worst kind of allegations. Uh, he's not taking anti-communism in the U.S. seriously, uh, and it's a pretty brutal campaign. And and conservative, the coalition increases its numbers in 1950. You know, there's one one uh, account that you know uh, that Truman after those midterm elections uh, gets uh, a bit drunk. Uh, because he's so depressed about about the outcome, um, and um, George uh, Elvey, one one of his advisors, recalls that. Um, but those midterm elections, I think, also kind of that's the the bookend uh, to when when that Korea decision was made. Yeah, yeah, that's just fascinating. I love backstories. I love it when historians discover backstories. Um, so let's move on to uh, Vietnam and the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, particularly, but also the escalation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how politics played into that decision. That's huge. I mean, I, uh, there, there's different interpretations of why Johnson went into Vietnam. You know, some have stressed the uh, kind of the, the more familiar story of the Cold War a domino theory a consensus. It was inevitable. That's how everyone was thinking at the time. And, and so Johnson just took, took what everyone was advising him to do. Another is Johnson's own machismo and, and manhood was at stake. That's another interpretation. The interpretation I, I found most compelling and, and came out of the documents was the politics. Uh, again, Johnson was a product of 1950s America. Uh, he was a product of all these wars, that Demo political wars, that Democrats had gone over about whether they were weak on defense. And, and he becomes president after Democrats had you know, rebuilt their uh, reputation uh, through this missile gap argument, uh, through uh, Kennedy's performance in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and he's very nervous, Johnson, in 64, that, you know, this can go away uh, and, and the Democrats can easily be attacked as weak on defense. Uh, and what's amazing is so many advisors were telling Johnson in 64, don't go into Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, people like Richard Russell, a conservative Georgian uh, who was Johnson's mentor, is saying on these tapes, the war isn't actually worth much strategically. It's, it's not going to get us anywhere against communism and we're never going to win it. Uh, Johnson's aware of this, but but one of the things he keeps coming back to is the politics. Uh, that politically, if if he is weak, if he withdraws, he's going to make Democrats vulnerable uh, to Goldwater, who in the summer of '64 is raising this as a key issue of uh, Vietnam and, and Johnson's defense credentials, and and obviously with Congress. 
Um, Johnson doesn't want to lose control because he has an ambitious domestic agenda. And Johnson also says, you know, Republicans would be much more dangerous on national security. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, it's important I win whatever way I can because Goldwater will get us into a nuclear war. Yeah. Uh, and, and the politics, both with the Gulf of Tonkin and then with the escalation that follows the election of 64, politics is, is front and center on his mind as he's trying to figure out what to do. Uh, one one other thing is, uh, you know, the way they there's many uh, questions about the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in the Senate, and and recent work has shown it wasn't that all the senators except a couple agreed on this. Uh, there were many concerns about all the issues that would emerge later. You know, is this too, mm-hmm. giving away too much to the president? And and what Johnson does is he has William Fulbright go and and sell this to members of Congress, uh, making two arguments. One is that uh, if, if Johnson needs more authority to send, if Johnson wants to send troops, Fulbright says, he will return to Congress and ask for more authority, and he's given him personal assurance. And B, that Johnson needed this to cover himself in the election, uh, and that politically Democrats couldn't afford to vote no on Gulf of Tonkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Fulbright would later write about this in his own book, saying it was one of the biggest mistakes he had made and that politics shaped uh, how, how he handled it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to go on to another um, event that we've talked about on this show before. We've had a couple of people, actually. We had Steve Kotkin on um, a couple of weeks ago talking about a related issue, uh, and that is um, Reagan's meeting with Gorbachev at Reykjavik, where he decides, um, I want to use the word unilaterally, <laughs> but that can't be right. He decides... Uh, of his own free will, that um, he will propose tremendous cuts in nuclear arms. Um, what is the political backstory here? Well, there you have uh, a politician who makes one of the most dramatic changes that we see in the public uh, eye, meaning you know, Reagan had been uh, a key member of the conservative movement. Uh, he had been a quintessential anti-communist. Uh, warrior. Uh, you know, in the 70s, he had been one of the leading critics of detente. He challenged Gerald Ford in 1976, uh, arguing that a fellow Republican was endangering the country mm. by uh, negotiating, as Nixon had did, uh, with the Soviets over arms reductions, mm-hmm. and we couldn't trust the Soviets. And then he really, that was what he was known for. In his early years, uh, he stood by that, uh, even though he was more open to negotiations than we thought. And work showing that uh, he still, you know, was very cold about negotiations and didn't put, you know, anyone but neoconservatives in key positions to handle that issue and made very aggressive rhetoric uh, in talking about the Soviet Union. But then when the opportunity emerges with Gorbachev uh, and between 85 and 87, he engages in a series of very big uh, negotiations and uh, moves to a place that he had been criticizing in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, part of the politics uh, is is just Reagan as, as a presidential leader. He saw an opportunity, and he was more pragmatic than we remember, and, and he was willing to take this chance. Uh, part of it is the negotiations accelerate uh, as Iran-Contra has become a big issue uh, in 86 mm-hmm. and 87 and is really harming his presidency. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a kind of scandal, which I think now we're starting to forget how big it was yeah. and, and the potential was. And this, in the end, rebuilds his presidency, um, and, and he kicked many hardliners out as a result of, of the Iran-Contra scandal mm-hmm. that left moderates in place. Uh, and finally, I mean, the other political backdrop is most conservatives were against this, and we forget that. Yeah, no, they were. Uh, yeah, no, I remember when. As he's, as he's negotiating, uh, conservative activists are comparing him to Neville Chamberlain. Yep. Uh, that one Howard Phillips calls him a fool of the Kremlin. Uh, and, and even prominent people like George Will and Dan Quayle, then a senator, are really against the INF Treaty, uh, which is what is signed in 87 mm-hmm. and finally ratified. Uh, and, and Reagan has to kind of contain and calm conservatives uh, for uh, their argument. They were saying he had abandoned his principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a really kind of tough political battle for the administration. Mm-hmm. And in the end, conservatives are not happy. That's what we forget. They weren't happy in 88 with what yeah. he had done. But in time, they kind of rebuilt their memory of him, and yeah. saying this was, in fact, his great moment. Yeah, no, I, it's funny because it seems to me that element of the Reagan presidency 
in the conservative telling of the Reagan presidency is almost always forgotten. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's just as if they don't want to remember it, but they, they were livid. They were absolutely yeah. livid about it because um, he was ta- – yeah, he was taking the party in a direction that he, they didn't think it should go. So let's move on to more um, contemporary events and talk about the first Gulf War. Uh, what is the political backdrop of that? Well, that, that's a big one. I mean, uh, uh, George, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, really uh, believed that the Democrats and the country – had moved in the wrong direction on, on national security after Vietnam and that we were too hesitant uh, to embrace uh, the use of military force when necessary. Uh, when uh, Iraq invades Kuwait, uh, there's a lot of opposition uh, to going into the war. Democrats are not in favor of this. They want to argue that we should allow international sanctions more time to work to pressure uh, Hussein. Uh, and it's, it becomes a very partisan issue early on. Uh, the, the parties are lined up against each other. And, and, and Bush makes a strong push that this is a case we need military force. Um, the, the, when we go into the war, Democrats remain hesitant. In the end, they kind of say they support it because politically there was no other option. And, and when that war comes to a close, it's a really difficult political moment for Democrats uh, because – Bush had argued we need to overcome the Vietnam syndrome, and he was arguing he just did it, uh, and the Democrats <laughs> did against him. Uh, and there's a famous moment after where he goes and speaks to Congress, and, and the Republicans are, are wearing uh, flags and, and reminding voters that they had been in favor of this and Democrats against it. Uh, and, and, and the administration is very cognizant of using this as a key issue going into the 92 election. Um, so, so it's a highly partisan uh, kind of war, and it's a very uh, political, both when it's starting out, uh, but also when it ends. Uh, in the end, you know, he can't make as much of it as he thought for that election. And one of the things that goes wrong is, you know, Bush had been uh, steadfast in not going after Saddam Hussein. And uh, one of the reasons he said was politically the nation wouldn't stand for it. Uh, Bush said, you know, we're getting over the Vietnam syndrome, but it's still a country that doesn't really like to go to war. Uh, and, and so he kind of limited the operation. And what happens is in 92, Hussein is, is back in the news, and he's, you know, a- attacking uh, various factions, and he's taunting uh, the Bush administration. And then many Democrats say, look, he wasn't actually so good on defense. You see that battle to be a hawk emerge. Uh, uh, Senator Gore writes a letter to the administration saying they haven't done enough in the post-war period to really contain uh, Hussein. Yeah. No, it's interesting in the perspective of history. I I don't think we really know yet whether to call um, the halt before Baghdad a good move or a bad move or not. I know know that immediately afterwards and actually in the following years that everyone castigated it and said that we should have gone on and – taken Baghdad and gotten rid of Hussein. But uh, in light of what happened after, uh, maybe um, maybe uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was not, uh, not such a dumb fellow. Anyway, let's talk about the uh, – let's talk about the uh, – one thing that I was quite amazed about, actually, that the um, – I don't really know what to call them. Do they have a name, the Kosovo bombings, the Serbian bombings? During they don't the, have a tag. Yeah, they don't have no, they have no tag for those. Yeah. But, but they, were, yeah. uh, they were important and they were big. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the 90s chapter is about, in part, it, it's, it's not unlike the 50s with Democrats trying to uh, rebuild their political image on national security. And there's a number of steps that Clinton goes through where, where in fact, Democrats are, are being more aggressive in the use of, of military force, building national security institutions than Republicans. Uh, one is, is the Bosnia uh, uh bombing in, in 1995. It will kind of culminate then with Kosovo in 99. Uh, in both cases, you know, the, the administration is, is pushing the use of military force, where many Republicans are saying these are not good operations and we have to withdraw a little bit uh, from international affairs. Um, a, a second area I talk about in my chapter in the 90s is Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. which, which was a really you know, huge terrorist attack in 1995 on a federal government building. Uh, and following that, the administration pushes for a vast expansion of homeland security, uh, pushing for measures like uh, something called roving wiretaps, where uh, the government can tap several phones that one person is using 
as they get rid of each mm -hmm. phone without getting a new court order. And it's the Republicans who are opposing this. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Barr in the House leads a coalition that uh, links up with civil libertarians and says this is too much government. Uh, and both of those, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, the strikes against al-Qaeda, uh, which uh, are undertaken, and, and the Oklahoma City response, it's the Democrats that come by the late 1990s with, with, with a pretty aggressive uh, kind of national security agenda, which, again, isn't unlike what happened in the 1950s, uh, feeling a bit more hawkish as the decade ended uh, than they had for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. No, I, I remember being very surprised about what Clinton was doing, and uh, you'll pardon me for saying admiring it, but uh, in, in, <laughs> in any event, uh, he uh, – yeah, actually, I heard Bill Clinton on the radio just the other day about this Haitian crisis, and uh, that guy is good. That guy is really good. <laughs> um, he he really that guy can talk definitely talk a good game. Uh, let, let's talk about nine eleven and the aftermath. And I'll just tell one anecdote. I, I remember I was uh, actually um, was teaching at a university on the East Coast, and I, I had the opportunity every week to meet with um, about twenty five of my uh, peers every week on a uh, as I said on the uh, administrative board. And uh, I remember the morning of 9-11 very well. And uh, I walked into the room. Uh, it must have even been the same day. or Maybe it was a couple of days later. I don't remember. But everybody had one of these uh, flag lapel pins on. Right. Where did they get those things? You know, I, was, I think I was the only person in the room who didn't have one. Everybody was all of a sudden had a flag lapel pin on. Um, did, water, did, did politics stop at the water's edge in, after 9-11? Not at all. Kind of, that's when I started the book. Um, you know, there's there's a, a couple days tops uh, when the politicians aren't fighting with each other. I think on September 12th, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, makes a big speech saying we will be united behind the president. There's events in Washington where they stand together and Republicans offer the same, same kind of thing. Uh, but within the first year, uh, that ends. Uh, and as the U.S. tries to respond in terms of revamping homeland security, the political battles start instantly. Uh, one of the big battles early on is about uh, airport security, mm -hmm. and uh, Democrats actually are pushing more aggressively than Republicans uh, to revamp airline security. Uh, but one of the things they want to do is uh, you know, have the workers uh, who are handling new initiatives be federalized and, and have union protection. Republicans are against this. Uh, and instantly the fight starts uh, with Republicans saying that, you know, Democrats are holding up national security because of uh, their, you know, being linked to unions. Mm -hmm. uh, and Democrats making the same kind of argument that the administration's playing politics right after 9-11 because mm -hmm. they want to kind of take it out on Democratic constituencies. And uh, the politics is there uh, right from the start. Uh, so sometimes we saw it in partisan battles over what to do. Uh, I also think uh, in the buildup to Iraq and, and the resolution authorizing force, you saw politics as well uh, in a different way. Uh, many Democrats voted in favor of it, uh, even though there were open debates about whether this was the right thing to do yeah. uh, and whether this was a good use of force. It wasn't. It was a little like Vietnam. It wasn't that everyone there was a consensus uh, that Iraq was a good decision. Uh, the debates were right on the floor. You can just read them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in the end, I think a lot of Democrats had those same fears that Johnson had of the Republican right, that if at that moment they voted against this resolution, they could destroy their party, uh, mm -hmm. kind of being weak on defense post 9-11. And I think many of the senators uh, who voted for it were part of a political competition in some ways that you know, starts in the 90s as Democrats are trying to rebuild their hawkish credentials, mm -hmm. and, and they get right into it again. Mm -hmm. No, I remember this very well. I was working in Washington at the time, and I was working for a magazine, a political magazine, and uh, and I remember the debates. We had them in the office. Uh, and it's funny because if you read the political press now, especially the leftist or left political press, the story that they tell is um, George Bush and his neocons. It sounds like a new wave group or something, doesn't it, George Bush and his neocons? Yeah. George Bush and his neocons basically bamboozled us into going to war and kind of forced it down our throats, that he somehow right. engineered it all himself. And that was right. just the, that's just not what happened at all. I mean, I, I remember it very well that um, – and actually, here, here's one moment where the, uh, the national security state sort of did what it's supposed to do because the different agencies said different things. I remember reading the State Department um, 
uh, intelligence analysis, and and um, it said something entirely different than the one that was out from the CIA or the National Intelligence. And I think it was the National Intelligence Estimate. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and then I remember the yeah. State Department officials put footnotes in it saying, we don't agree. If I recall right. correctly, I don't remember. This is amazing. I mean, they're not even, even – the National Security Administration can't even – or National Security uh, Apparatus can't even speak with one voice about this. And then there was this right. – I mean, th- th- nobody agrees on what's going on No, here. absolutely. And again, it's, it's not – you don't have to look too hard. Uh, to, this is in, it, it's in the mainstream papers that cover New York Times, Washington Post. They raise questions. The, the Post has a big story. It was on the front page, I believe, about whether – the evidence about Hussein's weapons programs were sound. This was before the resolution was even passed. Uh, Senator John Kerry, uh, you know, uh, initially is asking why the president wants to rush to war in Iraq because of all the mistakes that had been made in Afghanistan. And you have, you know, Nancy Pelosi's openly questioning it. Uh, and I think, again, in the end, it wasn't Bush, the secret, uh, you know, cabal of neoconservatives just tricked the nation and we weren't paying attention. Uh, I, I think the, the, the party leaders had this debate, and in the end, I, I really do think in that case, uh, the political atmosphere and the political competition, partisan competition, led many Democrats not to vote, uh, you know, based on what they knew or what they were saying. Yeah, but I mean, I think the important thing to remember and have stick very firmly in our mind is that there was a, a very aggressive debate, and yeah, people no, people absolutely. people were raising the questions about what yeah. would happen if we didn't find, for example, weapons of mass destruction, even at the time. I mean, I remember very clearly we were in this same office, this magazine, and uh, one of my colleagues was Ross Douthat, who's a yeah. uh, conservative columnist, right? And, and he wasn't a conservative in columnist at the time. And, and I remember we were debating this, and, and we were going over the evidence because one of my colleagues was writing a story about uh, one of the fellows on the U.N. Weapons Inspection Committee, a guy named Scott, um, I don't remember his last name, in any event, he said there were no weapons of mass Ritter. destruction. Yeah, yeah, Scott Ritter, exactly, who turns out to have been exactly right. Right. <laughs> but who was painted as a lunatic. And yep. anyway, and Douthat kind of stood up in our cubicle farm and said, well, what happens if they don't find them? What will we right. do if they don't find them? And we just all kind of looked at one another. Like, yep. no way. There's no way that right. can happen. There's no way that can happen. And but we'd all read the evidence, and we knew they right. might not find them. And they didn't find them. So, right. you know, I mean, it was, it was really, uh, you know, it was... In hindsight, everything looked very, very different. So, uh, and your book does a terrific job of, uh, of of bringing that out. I really think it does. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about your um, <clears throat> efforts as a public intellectual, and uh, particularly how you've uh, used your own historical research to to try to impact um, policy and thinking, and to inform the uh, um, to inform the, the the populace generally. What what are the sort of basic techniques that um, you use? I hope everything's okay there. Is there is that, yeah, yeah. Is that on your end or mine? I think it's on your end. Oh, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Everything's okay here. Yeah. Yeah. Are we in code uh, orange or what are we, orange yellow? I don't know where yeah, we are right, right now. Right. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, why don't you talk I mean, a little bit about that? I started doing it uh, kind of uh, speaking. I, I didn't go into it uh, planning to do this. Uh, when I was a professor in SUNY Albany, I remember, uh, they during the impeachment of Bill Clinton, the local CBS morning news asked me if I had just come on and provide a little historical perspective on impeachment. Uh, and I was compared to um, some other uh, moments, uh, such as in the 19th century. And, and, and so I did it, and it was fun and interesting. You know, you have 30 seconds to speak, uh, but I didn't mind that. Uh, and, and I started to do more and more of it. Um, and, and since the 1998, I've been uh, doing a number of things. I've been kind of, I appear in radio or I interview with uh with reporters or I go on television to give, you know, the soundbite analysis to the historian. Uh, and I also now, in the last two or three years, have been writing a lot of op-eds uh, everywhere, New York Times, Post, uh, Politico, CNN, and a bunch of places. And I really enjoy doing it. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a very different kind of format. I have to be uh, very short, uh, much punchier. Uh, and, and I really have to get to the bottom line of, of, of what I want to argue about, you know, how history informs, you know, Obama's decision to go into Afghanistan or accelerate uh, the number of troops in Afghanistan or whether it was about you know, Bill Clinton's impeachment. Uh, and, and they have to write, you know, you know very legible <laughs> prose uh, so, you know, anyone can understand it. Uh, but I enjoy it. I mean, one of the remarkable things is historians have some things to say, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, my field obviously is is nice, is well built for that. Um, but but I've been able to reach um, a, a lot of people by essentially providing a little historical perspective to some arguments that get out there at any given moment. I mm -hmm. try not to be very partisan. I try not to be very polemic. That's I think how people usually read me. So I get attacked by the left and right, which mm -hmm. I usually consider. That's good. good. That's excellent. Uh, yeah, that's my favor when that happens. Yeah. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I really try to do genuinely you know, the historical context of, of whatever we're talking about or whatever the issue of the day is. Sometimes I do less of that. It's more standard opinion piece. But that's really uh, what, what most interests me. And, and it's, I think it's helped me with my own teaching and writing uh, because of the exercise of trying to um, really uh, work on your prose and, and, and make it more compelling and, and to be able to communicate your ideas quickly in, in 20 seconds on a television interview, uh, I think actually can be very helpful then when you're structuring your classroom um, presence and, and uh, interaction with students. I think it's kind of worked nicely. And, and certainly with my own writing, I, I do feel it's improved. And part of it is is that work in the media. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm a big believer that, you know, academics, if they want, shouldn't separate themselves uh, when these opportunities arise uh, because I think there's great things they can say. Again, even if you only have a sentence to say it or a few mm -hmm. seconds to say it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, but I, I – you know, you should I, give yourself the proper amount of credit because I've tried to do some of this myself and I know lots of colleagues have. And I know in my case I would say that there's nothing I can't say in uh, – there's nothing I can say in 50 words that I can't say in 5,000. So, <laughs> so, so it's, it is actually very difficult to boil it down in this way. And um, it's, it's how would you, you know, if you were giving advice to a historian that had something to say, what, what advice would you give? How do you approach editors or how do you, uh, can you contact people at the local television station or how, how does one, what are the mechanics of actually um, getting into uh, sort of popular media? I mean, in terms of writing op-eds, uh, it's just a lot of patience. Uh, I, I mean, most of the contacts are just online at this point, and, and there's a place to send op-eds. And, and in that that uh, type of uh, effort, I think you just have to keep trying. I think you get a lot of rejections. I have. Uh, and you just keep plugging away, and then all of a sudden opportunities arise. Something's accepted. Sometimes an editor will come back at you and say, I don't like this, but would you write something along mm -hmm. these lines? And, and you really have to be determined. Um, and on the other stuff, I don't, to be honest, I don't know how it all happens. I mean, it starts in part when, when you're at a university. University usually has a public relations kind of outfit. Mm -hmm. And their job is to get the professors in the media. And, and I think if you want this, you have to be proactive and really tell them what you do. Uh, they don't always know kind of a historian is the natural go-to person. Uh, and, and talk with them, and they can get. They have lists of reporters in all the different media, and can get your name out there pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think importantly, you start if, if you want to do this, you shouldn't be too selective. <laughs> Meaning, take a, a kind of local news channel as seriously as you take NPR or CNN news, whatever, uh, and, and work on it. I mean, it took me a lot of time. Uh, now I can do radio quickly. I can be called on the spot and do a 20-minute mm -hmm. interview. I'm not, I'm not nervous. I think I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did a lot of them, man. And I started with the local Albany NPR mm -hmm. uh, or commercial radio. And I went on local TV. I'd wake up at 530 in the morning and go and talk <laughs> with the news guys. And I remember when I did it, I said, well, I'll just keep doing it. And then, you know, eventually I'll get bigger opportunities and I'll, I'll be ready to go on national TV if that came up. And it did. Um, so it's like everything else, it's like writing, teaching, and everything else we do. Just it's, you need to practice and you need to use small opportunities to prepare yourself for bigger ones. Mm -hmm. We should also mention the History News Service, uh, which will um, help historians who write op-ed pieces, um, distribute them. And the History News Service um, uh, can be found on HNET. If you just Google History News Service, uh, you will find it if you're a historian with an op-ed piece and you would like to have the History News Service help you. I know that they, they've, they've been um, helpful to many historians in the past. Um, w one thing I did want to ask uh, is about popular books. One thing that um, I find kind of fascinating is that um, once historians get tenure, you know, and they sort of secure in their careers, they'll often continue to – well, first of all, they'll often stop writing altogether. <laughs> but, the, but they'll often continue to write these rather obscure, although very valuable, monographs, and they won't go on to write uh, 
of popular books. Um, this book of yours is published with a trade press, uh, a very good trade press, not, not your usual trade press. Uh, not that trade presses are bad for my friends in the trade press business, but uh, how, how did you um, come to have the opportunity to write for a trade press? Well, um, when, uh, when, I, when I thought of the book proposal, uh, I had just floated it around. I, I didn't have any agents or I didn't have anything like that. Uh, and, and a bunch of uh, editors were interested. I had an offer from a couple trade presses. Uh, this book was signed with another press, in fact, and, and the um, editor then moved to a trade press and, and signed it there, or brought it over there. Uh, and now my next couple books are also with trade presses. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's really just a matter. Of, what's important, I think, is your proposal. Uh, yeah. That was very important to write a proposal in, in a different way than you might if you were going for many academic presses. Uh, and, and then, you know, the editors have to see this as something that can sell. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a commercial operation, right, exactly. uh, which in, increasingly is the case with university presses, to mm -hmm. be honest, at this point. Uh, uh, but I, my ambition was to write uh, for more, uh, a bigger audience. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was attractive to me. Unlike some other disciplines, I think in history, you can write almost the same kind of book. Uh, you know, just really improving your prose mm -hmm. uh, and, and cutting down some of the jargon and, and it could be a trade book. I, I don't think the switch is as big as it might be for an economist or a political scientist. Uh, so for me, this was exciting. I, I feel like this is the book I would have written for an academic press mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, uh, other than they pushed me on my writing mm -hmm. uh, to really bring out the story in, in ways I think all historians should do. Mm -hmm. uh, but the proposal is the, the key there are a lot of writers now, including myself, who have literary agents. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to approach also online with the book idea. Uh, and, and, and if they accept you, they can get uh, the attention of trade editors in mm -hmm. ways it's hard if you're just a historian setting these out, uh, and they'll take a look at it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that they, they also can work on you, with you on how do you shape a proposal that a trade press will see as uh, favorable and something they want to sign. And I think the agent, if this is the path you want to take, is really kind of crucial. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I have an agent. His name's Bob Mikoy. Uh, if anybody wants to contact him, uh, he's very disappointed in me because I've made him no money. <laughs> yeah. But he's a very good guy, and he's worked with me a lot, and, and he really has helped me shape. That's not exactly true. I do write a few things for him. Um, he really did help me understand exactly what trade press editors want. And when you understand what trade press editors want, I think you have a better understanding of what the American public probably wants to read. That is a better understanding that you're like, than you're likely to get in a graduate student seminar about, say, 16th century Russia, uh, where you'll get no impression at all about what America wants to read. So I think talking to both editors and to, um, and to agents is, is probably a good idea. And I always encourage historians who, again, have written their um, monograph and gotten tenure in their articles and that kind of thing, to think a little bit about how the story that they have told, the research that they have done, can help inform the popular debate about, well, just about everything. I mean, in your case, you're right. The, um, the, the connection is very close. People recognize the things in your book. But I, I wrote an article, this must be 10 years ago, that was published internationally, actually, about the importance of what had happened in 16th and 17th century Russia to what was happening in Russia today. I mean, and I didn't make it up. It's true. It did really matter, and I managed to get the attention of a few editors. Um, again, I got in, in Europe and in, both in the United States. But you're absolutely right about being a little bit thick-skinned about it. The, uh, and academics don't tend to be terribly thick-skinned. I'll only speak for myself, I guess. Uh, yeah. But you get a lot of rejection. You know, you're going to oh, yeah. get a big pile of people saying no. I mean, I used to say when I worked kind of as an editor that an editor's job is to say no. <laughs> that's that's what they do for a living. Um, yeah, you have to, I mean, you, you have to have thick skin. You have to be willing to change and to to listen to to your both editors, to your agents, and and if you're not willing to do that, it probably won't work. It's probably not what you want to do. Uh, but but uh, I think that's true. I don't, I'd say that's also true to go back to before to being a public intellectual. I mean, it's a tough world out there. Uh, especially with the internet, and and you have to be willing. I think both of you are going to write books that reach a broader audience, or to make statements and write op-eds to take the response that comes with that. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and I could say it's very. Uh, I think the internet has changed. It wasn't until the internet like this 
uh, but you're easily accessible now, and, mm-hmm. and it can get pretty nasty. And in the end, that you know can't for some people I think that is a deterrent, legitimately. Um, but you have to have a, a thick skin. You have to have, be willing to have people say if you're public intellectual, bad things about you. And when you're trying to sell a trade book, you have to be willing to hear no, and, and you really need to improve or change your style a bit. I think those are things to consider before you go down that path. No, I think that's exactly right. A certain amount of soul searching is necessary. I remember when I first became involved in, let's call it, a debate on the internet using yep. kind of historical arguments, and uh, pretty much anybody can participate, and you get uh, responses which are a little bit rougher than you might again get in that graduate seminar. And yep. you, you have to become used to that. You know, you're yep. going to be called an idiot and a lot worse. You know, things that your mother would wash her mouth out with soap. Right. About. Just, you're, you know, you just have to get used to that. And uh, it's disturbing. I mean, I have to admit, I, I found it very disturbing at first to be called um, every name in the yep. book and idiot and everything like this. But, you know, that's part of public discourse. And, if, and the, payoff, the payoff is that you can, you know, throw your ideas out to a, a, a readership that is just much bigger than you'll ever be able to do, yeah. uh, and 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 there that is that can be very rewarding. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, no, uh, so, so you know, there's trade-offs. Let me talk just just uh, we're in the closing minutes here. We've taken yep. up a heck of a lot of your time, but I want to say uh, I want to ask just a couple more questions. And one is about the internet itself. Do you do anything on the internet? I mean, do you have a blog, or do you uh, participate in a group blog, or do you read historical or political blogs? Uh, not that much, to be honest. I mean, my I do write for places like Politico, which are solely online at this point. I mean, online news is, is the wave of the future, and I do write for that. I've written for the Huffington Post, but I, I don't blog. I, I've never done that. Just, I, I'm out of time. Uh, so, and, and I like when I have something to say, basically, at this point, when I have a response to something in the news, I, I do want to save it for one of my columns uh, rather than just blogging it. Uh, and I'm not I, – I, do I read any – I read mostly news blogs, basically. News is really what I consume through the Internet. Um, so, so uh, you know, my writing and, and my news reading does come, you know, entirely from the Internet at this point. Yeah. No, I, I – you know, this show is is part of an effort on my part. When I was in journalism, when I worked for this magazine in Washington um, – I became aware of the fact that the Internet was really uh, the best way to distribute this kind of thing, but there wasn't really a space at that time – this was a long time ago uh, – for serious debate, and I think there is now. Um, yep. And you mentioned Politico and these other places. They're very serious, and they're done yep. by fair-minded, intelligent people, and you can feel safe there. There's a community blog that I participate in quite a bit called MetaFilter, and uh, I can tell you that um, they're very serious people. There are 60,000 of them who uh, are participants on this a discussion site, and uh, they're, they're very, very smart people. They're kind of self-selected. So there is a safe space. It's not all um, naked ladies and uh, right. whatever else they have. Uh, there, there, yeah. is a, there is a place for it. And, again, this show is part of an effort to expand that space in a certain way. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's my own little contribution. But I would encourage anybody who is interested in these things to go to something like the History News Network or go to the uh, History News Service if you have an op-ed um, that you'd like um, printed somewhere. and and kind of, um, you know, attempt to get out there and say what historians can can say. Yeah, I did use the History News Service a few years ago, I remember, for a couple pieces, and they were terrific. I mm-hmm. mean, they were really, really, you got editing, very good editing before you sent this out, and the stories are picked up by mm-hmm. newspapers that pay right. for the service. And yeah. it's really, I mean, I think it's a great thing for historians that they've done. And yeah, no, people should take advantage of it. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I, there, there's just a whole bunch of really good history blogs out there. Um, I mentioned yeah. the History News Service but and the History News Network, but there are lots of them out there um, that you can read if you're interested. And, uh, you know, I, I really encourage historians to get involved in this kind of thing because, you know, what are we? But <laughs> I always tell, I always tell my, my students and their parents when they come to meet me that I'm, a, uh, I'm an employee of, this, of, of the state of Iowa. I, I, I serve the people of Iowa. <laughs> That's what I do. So um, I, I'm a... Uh, so I'm very excited about this. These new methods of of distribution. I think that they're extraordinarily important and can only add to the kind of richness of our our public debate. As I said, we've taken up Julian. We've taken up a, an absolutely huge amount of your time. I, f- I find all this very fascinating. Uh, and I'd like to conclude the interview with our traditional final question on new books in history. That is, what is your next project? You mentioned you have a couple irons in the fire. Yes, I have three books that will be coming out wow. uh, over next year. I have one on the presidency of Jimmy Carter, which will be with Times Books, uh, a second edited book on the presidency of George W. Bush with a group of terrific historians writing about different issues, placing him in context, 
And I uh, co-wrote a book with uh, Professor Meg Jacobs of MIT on the Reagan Revolution, which is with Bedford for undergraduates, uh-huh. uh, and that'll be coming out next year. Mm-hmm. A bunch of articles I've written that are coming out, including one on kind of looking again at the history of conservatism and, and new trends that are coming out. Uh, and finally, I'm just starting a new book as I finish these others on the Great Society. Wow. Uh, so those are the projects in process. Well, then you'll have to be on the show multiple times. That's, okay. that's the deal. If you're on once, you get to be on many times. Uh, okay. I would like to thank you again. Julian Zelizer has been on the show today, and we've been talking about his terrific new book, Arsenal of Democracy, the Politics of National Security from World War II to the War on Terrorism. And again, I just want to thank you, Julian, for being on the show. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Julian Zelizer about his new book, Arsenal of Democracy, The Politics of National Security from World War II to the War on Terrorism. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.